I'll sometimes put them in the laundry machine and then it, you'll have little pieces of Kleenex spread around everywhere. Um, and uh, understandably, this is, not, uh, this is not ideal. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the U of T Medicine Faculty After Hours podcast. We are so excited to have you join us today as we welcome a special guest, our new CPC1 course director. We will be talking a little bit to him about his roles in the department, his interests inside and outside of medicine, and maybe if we're lucky, we'll get to listen to some pearls he can share to help students survive CPC1. So come sit with us with a delicious cup of tea or coffee and enjoy another piping hot episode of Faculty After Hours. My name's Danielle Lewis and I'm Vice President Student Engagement on MedSoc. My name is Calandra and I am the MedSoc President and the two of us will be interviewing Dr. Robert Goldberg today. Dr. Goldberg is an endocrinologist who practices in Mississauga. He completed his residency training at U of T in internal medicine and then further specialized in endocrinology and metabolism. He is also an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and clinical teacher at Trillium Health Partners, Go Ma'am, in which he helps students to learn and grow from their first weeks in medical school through their clerkship and beyond. Dr. Goldberg is notably our new CPC1 course director in the foundation's curriculum. Welcome Dr. Goldberg. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you today, Calandra and Danielle, and thanks so much for hosting this wonderful podcast and um, excited to, to chat. Amazing. So I think just to kick us off and kind of open up the conversation, we're going to start with some rapid fire questions. Um, so I'm going to kick us off with, do you prefer coffee or tea? So I, I, I'm going to actually, I know this is a rapid fire question, Danielle, but I'm going to pause and take a deviation and say that one of my uh, one of my little kind of quirks in medical school was that I never, ever consumed caffeine. Um, so I can remember, you know, being on internal medicine rotations, even into residency, and we would go together the next day to the coffee shop in the hospital and, um, and everyone would order coffee and tea. And, you know, everyone I worked with knew that I was an Italian soda guy because I wanted to avoid the caffeine. Now, sadly, I have to admit that in recent years, I have uh, actually started to drink coffee, um, but uh, not having that experience in terms of being a coffee connoisseur, I'm uh, I'm actually like an instant coffee Nescafe in the morning type of guy. Um, and between Starbucks or Timmy's, I would go with either because honestly, all coffee tastes the same to me, especially with one milk and one cream as I like it. Wow, I'm really curious, if you didn't drink coffee or tea, did you find like you were under a lot of pressure from staff and other students? Because I know there's always coffee breaks and you'd always just pass, I guess. Yeah, so so that's how that Italian, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, Danielle. Um, 
you know, I think when I, I think about things back in the day when we used to come together, that's probably why I ordered the Italian soda. Like I, <laughs> I didn't really, I must say, I don't even like Italian soda very much. And especially now, um, you know, I'm more of like a, a flavored soda water type of guy when it comes to those types of things. But you're right, there's, there's kind of these indirect peer pressures that, you know, enter in those settings. And I would say that, you know, to anyone who's listening, you know, at the end of the day we're all good and we're all on the same side and if you know you're ordering coffee or tea with me at the um the mississauga starbucks or tim hortons i am comfortable with whatever you get or if you don't want to get anything at all amazing so to everyone listening it's okay if you don't drink coffee or tea is the takeaway <laughs> that's so nice um yeah. our next question is what is your favorite color to wear yeah so probably blue. I think my, um, my cupboard is filled with blue and, you know, blue is for two reasons now. So number one, since COVID started, I have just been wearing the light blue scrubs that I have at home. Um, and, uh, and that's not because of COVID precautions per se. Like I wear these in, in kind of, uh, virtual clinic environments as well, but because, um, I, they're just more comfortable and I almost wish we can all just wear blue scrubs everywhere we go but if you met me in kind of a pre-COVID phase you would know and you go into my closet you would know that there's all sorts of um, blue striped usually Banana Republic shirts in various different hues of blue so so I'm gonna go with blue there Danielle. Amazing um, I also am a big Banana Republic fan so just shout out to that store. Um, do you have a nickname your parents used to call you? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'll sort of um, share this here. So I'm a, a Robert Goldberg, as you see, but, um, you know, I, I think every sort of family friend and since I was a child, I've gone by Robbie. So if you're sitting in any CPC one lectures or other activities and, you know, the, the, the lecturer that I'm with is saying, you know, hey, Robbie, you'll know that's because that's sort of what I go by in any other setting. So I'm good with Robert, Rob, Robbie, um, or anything else uh, like that. Um, I think maybe my mom used to call me Roba for a short period of time, but you know, I, I think any of the above goes, maybe not the Roba. <laughs> and not Bert? Uh, not Bert, but um, you know, anything goes, like Robert could be Bob, Bobby, um, you know, Bert, you could come up with all sorts of variations there. So, uh, so I'm easygoing. Nice. Uh, the next question is, what what is one of your weirdest quirks? Yeah, one of my weirdest quirks. So my wife can comment on this. Um, I, I keep Kleenex in every pocket of my pants and my jacket, just extra Kleenex on the go. Um, and the reason why my wife knows this is because I'll sometimes put them in the laundry machine and then it, you'll have little pieces of Kleenex spread around everywhere. Um, and uh, understandably, this is not, uh, this is not ideal. Um, but I think anyone who knows me knows that if you ever need a Kleenex tissue, um, I don't think most people People, especially in the age of COVID, want to take any Kleenex tissue from anyone else's pockets. But know that in our post-COVID world, if you ever need a tissue um, and it's coming from my pocket, it is clean and I'm glad to share it with you. 
I'm curious. But what, only for happy occasions. <laughs> <laughs> what started that court? What got you into keeping? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, um, uh, you know, if you ever have, a, a, you know, nasal congestion is a taboo these days. But, um, you know, if you ever have nasal congestion, I, I think you want a Kleenex on the go with young children. Um, their hands get dirty everywhere you go. So you want to have tissue on the go. Um, there's so many uses for tissue that, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something um, we should all keep in our pockets and doing it in a hygienic way with those nice little um, individually wrapped 12 packs of tissue. Um, you know, that that is that's the way to go from a hygiene standpoint, I think. Very smart. Um, what is your favorite joke or story that you've heard in the last two weeks? Yeah favorite joker story so i i don't think i have anything wild to share in terms of a story or joke danielle that comes to my mind i know in our zoom world i i don't know if this is funny or or whatnot but um you know i do uh, i have a room in our basement that i've used for for zoom meetings and i'm sure all of us you know in the setting of zoom have our own little kind of quirky area in our places of dwelling that, you know, may or may not, what you see in the background may or may not reflect everything that's around you. So I would call this a multi-purpose room because the room has um, a treadmill, a fold-up table that I'm using as a Zoom desk. And really, if you look in the corner, we have like laundry that is, um, that is, uh, uh, you know, a laundry rack that's used to kind of um, dry down clothes that shouldn't be dried. So um, I was in a Zoom meeting and someone said to me, you know, hey, like, uh, is, that, is that laundry that you have hanging right behind you? And I realized I had to sort of shuffle that right to the corner because um, I don't want that happening again, so. Oh, it could happen to any of us. Not, not a problem. That's right. And it's all good. And we know, I mean, at least I know, I think everyone has their own sort of situation that um, that is unique to them in the setting of uh, of COVID and, and especially in the setting of Zoom. So, you know, um, you know, I, I'm always, I, you know, very respectful and understanding, I think, of, of everyone's background in that regard. And, um, you know, if I, if I were to go upstairs, you might hear crying babies. So, um, you know, it's just everyone has their own unique situation. And I don't think anyone, um, you know, to me, it's all good. But um, yeah. That's nice to hear. I live in the den of my apartment in Toronto, so I don't actually have space for a desk. So I always sit on the floor. And I always feel like it's really obvious that I'm sitting on the floor, but I appreciate what you said. Yeah. Uh, next question is, who is your role model? Role model. So I, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's kind of, uh, you know, if, if, if you were to ask me when I was really young who my role model is, I would have said my parents. And then if you would have asked me a couple of years later, I would have said, Oh, I'm not sure. But then if you ask me now, I would definitely say my parents again. I mean, that's kind of this sort of 
uh, obvious answer for a lot of individuals, but it's really, um, you know, I think it's reflective, like, of the evolution we all have as individuals. You know, they're, they're you know, when you're a kid, and I, I see this even myself, you know, your, your parents are infallible, and then you probably go through a period where you're like, ah, like, you know, um, you know, this could be better, and that could be different. And then, you know, as you go through time, you realize just how, how really um, incredible they are. And, and, you know, I think that, um, that that's sort of who I would look at, recognizing that we sort of all have, you know, there's different aspects of our lives um, in terms of, you know, um, work and education and, you know, hobbies and friends and, you know, um, whether you call them role models or, or sort of people that you look to for, for direction, um, you know, there's all sorts of different individuals in all aspects of our lives that, you know, one can relate to in that setting. Yeah, definitely. That definitely resonates with me too. I think you can have role models for different aspects of your life in a sense. So maybe parents for just everyday life and then a really good role model in medicine for your professional career. So that's very true. That's exactly it. And, it, and it's hard to find good role models. So if you find, you know, someone that you connect with in your medical training um, or outside of your medical training, you know, um, you know, fly with it if you can, because, um, you know, as you go through things, you realize that that's there's lots of individuals that can do that, but you know sometimes we're a little bit shy to kind of you know jump in there. So um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Our next question is: What is a book you would recommend to students that you've read recently, if you have time to read right now? Yeah. So if you're asking me in terms of the books that I've read lately, I can go through them. They include classic hits like Angela's Airplane, uh, Something Good. Um, uh, oh, what's another good one that we're doing right now? Curious George Goes to the uh, Library. Um, so, you know, uh, an assortment of different children's books is really what uh, I honestly, if you ask me the books that I've read, that's all that enters my mind. But um, in terms of nonfiction, you know, it's not something that I've read lately, but I, I, I uh, like you went to, like all of you listening to this podcast, went to the University of Toronto Medical School and, and finished in 2010. And I know when I just started, there was a book that was published by a local author um, named Vincent Lamb called Bloodletting and Miraculous Cures. And um, this was, I think it was probably published around 2007, six maybe, because that would have been the time that I had just started. And I know at that time, you know, almost everyone in our year had read that book. And, um, you know, maybe 14 years later, it's not in vogue anymore, but I do uh, remember quite enjoying that as, um, and, and it takes place in Toronto and it's written by um, a, a physician who at the time was working in the Toronto area. So, so that that could be something to add to your reading list. Um, I, I don't know, Calandra and Danielle, is that a book you've heard of? Is that still in vogue or has it just kind of uh, gone by the wayside over the years? I've actually heard that title and it's on my list. So now I'm going to move it up on my list for sure. I like it. What was the title again? Um, it, yeah, it was called Bloodletting and Miraculous Cures, I think. And I'm pretty sure that the author was Vincent Lamb, L-A-M. Okay, great. I don't usually read often, but I do have a list like Calandra that I just add book recommendations to, so I'll add it as well. Do you, uh, let me ask you a question, Danielle. Do you read your books 
um, on uh, on um, on electronic devices, or do you still like old-fashioned uh, paper books like me? I still like old-fashioned paper books. I find electronics is too similar to reading school work, um, and it's nice to right now with Zoom fatigue and everything, just to give my eyes a rest. So that's kind of what I've phased to currently in 2020. That's that's great to hear, and it's great to hear that I am not the only one in that uh, sort of mindset. I love the physical copies too, just sometimes financially. I can't always justify continuously buying books, so I do like my library app, but I think I love holding something and just being in that setting too. Yeah, and it's, you know, again, things change over time. Back when I was a medical student in, in again, 2006 or 2010, we used to have, you know, there's probably forests that have been um, uh, degraded by the amount of paper that we use. So all of the week's lecture notes, you would come in on the Monday morning and there would be a table at the corner of the room and yeah. all of the week's lecture notes were printed in a package um, and stapled together. And um, and then, you know, you would write and take notes as you were listening, as you went. And I think, you know, uh, as learners evolved and as our technology evolved, you know, we've gone to an online format and that's, you know, that's better. But um, I always kind of think back to that. And, uh, and if you go somewhere in my parents' basement or um, in my room, you can probably find those notes, um, you know, uh, stashed behind uh, behind some binders. So there you go. Um, our next question is, uh, what is your favorite song right now? So favorite song right now, I would go to some classic artists like, um, and I'm sure everyone in the in the audience sort of has has heard uh, artists like Blippi. Um, no, I, I joke with you, uh, The Wiggles. Um, in all honesty, that's mostly what I, I listen to. We have two young children and um, but um, in terms of favorite songs, I was actually talking about this with my CBL group um, this past week. And, and you know, I sort of uh, said that I think that the music you listen to is, um, is the music that you listen to when you were like maybe like, or the music that came out and was popular when you were like 12 to 15 years old. Um, and I have to admit, like I have an Apple Music subscription and um, it's used mostly for those childhood songs but um you know if i ever were to open something up on a playlist it would be it would be things from that kind of era in terms of um you know like pop punk from like the late 90s and early 2000s so um that's sort of uh that's sort of what would be would be going for sure yeah it was funny i was similar to what you're saying i was watching the amas on the weekend with my parents and songs that i knew so well they had no idea what they were but it's from back like 2000s like 10 years ago so it's interesting how our music tastes kind of suit the genre that we grew up listening to 100 percent and I, I will, I'll just put a shout out, at least in my CBL group, we have um, a wonderful group that is uh, is playing, that during the break, we have someone who plays music uh, in the group, oh. identifying them, and we're going to switch up the individual who does it, but, um, you know, totally go in there with your tutors and, you know, um, Zoom fatigue is a thing, so listening to music in between during your breaks, I think, kind of eases things up a little bit. Calandra, that sounds like you. You always play music too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so our next question is, what is one thing you'd put on your bucket list? Yeah. 
I don't know if I have a bucket list, like I'm more of a, a go with the flow type of guy. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's kind of the generic things you could say, like travel or, um, or um, you know, an experience somewhere. Um, you know, one thing that I was into actually when I was a medical student was going around, um, uh, I'm a big baseball fan, so was going around to see the different ballparks and stadiums in, uh, in, in well, mostly in the US obviously, because Toronto is the only Canadian city. So I think at the time I had hit up like 15 of them um, out of the 30 uh, ballparks. So um, I guess it would be cool to, in a post COVID world, start going back to, you know, different ballparks in different cities and exploring that way. And, um, you know, anytime I'm in a city for a medical conference, I always try to think, oh, like which, which stadium or sports event can I try to make my way into? So why don't I go with that? Oh, that's really cool. Um other question is uh, texting or calling? Yeah, so I'm all about calling. Um, again, maybe I'm like old fashioned, but I have a, a friend uh, from high school um, and, you know, he says to me, like, I'm the only person who actually still calls him for anything. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I obviously text as well, but, you know, if you gave me the choice, it would be calling hands down. Yeah, calling's often more efficient too, I find, than texting. Um, next question is, if you could bring one thing, if you got stuck on a desert island, what would it be? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that if I didn't answer with my wife, I would be in trouble. But the honest answer is I would bring my wife with me and, um, and, and, um, and or our children. So maybe family that can be like one entity to come together because i think that's that's important to all of us um but if i could otherwise bring an object uh probably i'm I think I'm, I'd like to be strategic so i would think of something that would help me with survival um <laughs> maybe like an object that would allow me to uh, to gather food. I don't know what that, I would have to find out more about the structure of the island and its uh, geography uh, to give you a definitive response there. Oh, that's a smart answer. We haven't heard that yet, I don't think. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, next question is, do you have a favorite hobby? So favorite hobby, I mean, I'm into, into sports. Um, you know, again, like pre-COVID, I used to play floor hockey in the winter and uh, softball in the summer, though some of that has taken a bit of a break, um, at least the floor hockey part, um, just because of, you know, the busyness of life. But um, yeah, I would say playing sports is, is definitely up there. And, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, so so softball and floor hockey, and I say floor hockey because I am not a skater. I would never, uh, I was never, um, never an efficient or effective skater. So that's why floor hockey was all my thing. Cool. So very active, I think. And in terms of a skill, what is a skill that you would like to learn? So you're obviously involved in sports, but what's something you'd really like to get involved in? 
Yeah, I mean, growing up, I never played a musical instrument. So I think that would be like if I had like weeks and months on end to just kind of sit with something and learn it myself, that's probably, you know, the, the kind of first thought that comes to my mind there. Um, let's go with the piano, but um, really any sort of musical instrument, I think it's, um, it's always neat to have a special skill in that regard. For sure. And our next question is a bit of a silly one, but we've been asking everyone just to tease out the answer. Uh, but which one goes first, cereal or milk? So I don't even think that's really a question. Does anyone put, did any, has anyone answered milk first? Are there, are there folks who do that? I, th I think cereal would be hands down um, the first thing that I would put in. Um, and, uh, but I want to meet those individuals who put their milk in first because I, that's not something I've seen done before, uh, Calentra. Honestly, this is kind of a trick question. There's only one right answer, but we're waiting for the person who answers differently. I, I like it. It's all good. The bigger question is what cereal does that? I think the question can be modified to what's your go-to cereal? Um, and, uh, and if you were to ask me what my go-to cereal is, I would say I've always been a Rice Krispies guy. So I, I'm going to throw that out there. Oh, I like that modification. That's something we should add. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Another silly question is double dipping at a party ever acceptable? Yeah. So pre COVID, peri COVID and post COVID, the answer to that is absolutely not. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm very much a stickler about cleanliness and in regards to hygiene in that regard. So, um, so I'm going to go with a firm no. Um, but again, I'd like to meet those individuals who, who would answer yes. And, and and I'll just keep a little mental repository of them in my own mind the next time I'm at a party with them, um, just so that I can be extra cautious when I go to the vegetable dip station. Um, dog or cat? Yeah. Um, I, can I, I, I'm going to be perfectly transparent and honest here and say that I'm, you know, my family and myself, we're, we're probably not really animal people. Um, so I think that the answer there is I, I loved it. Like, on a, a kind of um, on an outside basis, I would probably say dog over cat, but um, but I, I don't think I'm ever, I think the closest thing I'm ever going to have to a pet is probably a goldfish. Um, but um, certainly, um, certainly I think between the two, I would probably go with dogs. And that's probably because I think I used to have a fear of cats. And I can remember at a friend's sleepover when I was in grade eight and I was sleeping as a, as a prank, he put his cat on top of me when I woke up there was a cat right on top and I was frightened beyond uh, description so um, so let's let's go with dog uh, uh, as my final answer okay maybe we'll modify that again to no animals um, <laughs> moving forward um, we all love animals it's all good Danielle it's uh... <laughs> yeah okay next question is what is a name of a drug that you have the toughest time pronouncing Hmm. Well, you know, I, I don't know if I have a good answer there other than to say that 
if um, if I was mispronouncing a drug, I'm not sure that I would know that I was completely mispronouncing it. Um, so there was, there's this, uh, uh, one of our diabetes medications, um, if anyone in second year is listening, is, um, is a class of medications called sulfonylureas, and there's one called glyclozide. And I always used to think that it was pronounced glycazide as opposed to glyclozide. Um, and whenever I would write a prescription for it in residency, say I would write glycazide, but then when you sort of search it on electronic medical record systems, you know, and you write you write it in the way that I just spelled it, nothing comes up. It says this is not a formulary medication. So I will say that, um, you know, you wanna make sure that you have your L in glyclozide. And the good news is that as you kind of go through clerkship and, and into practice, um, so many different hospital and outpatient systems are, um, are automatic in terms of electronic medical records. So if you don't know how to pronounce it, the system will take care of it for you. That's reassuring. That's funny too. Um, how about a clinical examination that you learned in med school, but you never actually used in practice? Uh, hmm. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give the kind of uh, generic sort of answer here and say that history is like 90% of your uh, of your assessment. So I really think that's true. And uh, especially in endocrinology, that's true. Um, there's probably lots of clinical examinations that we learned in medical school that I don't use in, in real life practice. Um, let me just think here. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think that uh, certainly as an endocrinologist, um, you know, we're focused on uh, in, in internal medicine, which I also do, um, you know, we're focused on on kind of the, the cardiac, respiratory, abdominal, vascular system. So, um, you know, there would probably be lots of clinical skills sessions from ICE surrounding pelvic exams, breast exams, probably most of the neurological exams, I hate to say it, that I have not actually used much in clinical practice um, in terms of like nitty gritty details uh, around it. So um, so I would just say there's quite a bit there, but um, you know, history is 90%, which is good because in our COVID era, um, you know, we're sort of, uh, I, I would suspect that there's probably a lot of kind of fear of missing out amongst students um, in terms of missing out on the physical exam. And, you know, I mean, the physical exam is important and I think, you know, it will come and, and you'll get there. Even in the clinical environment, we're doing it less now because of COVID precautions. But, um, but really and truly like, um, you know, the kind of um, uh, mindset uh, that most patients, uh, if you go through a really good thorough history and you really carefully think through the differential diagnosis and ask the right questions um, and or order the appropriate investigations, um, you know, you can get to the right response. That's good to know that history is key for all of the students freaking out about clerkship and, and not having too much physical um, exam practice. So our last question from Rapid Fire Questions is how are you dealing with Zoom fatigue? Yeah, so um, I don't know if I have a good answer to that one either. I mean, I think that there's the kind of generic answers that we're all sort of accustomed to and are absolutely, they're not generic. They're they're appropriate and true, which includes, you know, taking breaks, making sure that after every kind of interval of time that you're, you're sort of 
stepping away from the screen. Um, I, I think exercise like walking at the end of the day is, is would be my number one tip. I must admit, I don't always do it. Um, but on the days that I have been able to do it, I sure feel a lot better. Um, uh, maybe even to start the day, just to kind of mix things up if you're about to go in front of a screen. Um, you know, that that would probably be my number one tip, but certainly music, taking breaks, not feeling like you need to be in front of the screen all the time, um, making sure that you're well fed, that you're having snacks, that, you know, you have snacks on the go um, and that, you know, it kind of, I think, ties in with the whole individual in terms of um, in terms of just making sure that you're doing things for yourself in general so that, you know, when you come in front of the screen, um, you know, you have that sort of uh, moments to yourself to, to look back on and to feel refreshed. Uh, but Zoom fatigue is real. I mean, I'm chatting with you, um, Calandra and Danielle, after a, a approximately four hours of Zoom meetings in various forms prior to this. So, so I feel it like you. Yeah. It's definitely long days for all of us um, learners and staff on Zoom, I think. So thank you for answering all of our quick questions. Now we're going to dive in to get to know you a bit better. Starting with, um, we're wondering if you could describe your role in the faculty and also the best or toughest thing about your job, both in faculty or clinically. Yeah, so uh, so I'm an endocrinologist um, and I'm based at the Mississauga Hospital at Trillium Health Partners and um, I do a combination of uh, outpatient endocrinology, which includes diabetes and general thyroid conditions, inpatient endocrinology. Um, we have a, a robust uh, inpatient service at the, at the Mississauga site and I also do internal medicine, both just a little bit on the clinical teaching unit and also um, uh, through various call shifts that are kind of built into our schedule. Uh, in terms of my role within the faculty, I am, um, so I'm, as you had alluded to, the course director for CPC One, um, Concepts, Patients and Communities One. And, um, you know, it sounds like we're going to come back to CPC One a little bit at the end. So I'll leave my thoughts about that for then. But um, I'm also involved in faculty development, which I would kind of say is a sort of way of saying teaching others how to teach um, effectively. And, um, and yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that sort of sums it up. So kind of hats within the university and also within uh, the Mississauga Academy of Medicine as well. That's great. And then maybe kind of back to like the basics, but why medicine and, and then maybe further elaborate on why internal medicine and endocrinology yeah, so uh, I can remember when I was a, a clerk and I had done my internal medicine re rotation was towards the end and I had thought that maybe that was something that I wanted to do. But, um, you know, I had really loved family medicine. And then after I had done pediatrics, I had uh, I had really quite liked that. And um, and I was torn between all of them. And I really I sort of when I look at medicine, um, I I love I, I mean, endocrinology is specific, but I really like generalism um, as well. And I, um, 
you know, in terms of thinking about fields within medicine, um, I really like the idea of, of, of having, you know, your fingers on a whole bunch of different areas. And I always felt that when I went from medical school into residency, and you know you kind of hone in on internal medicine and again i love internal medicine but i always felt like i was missing like you know i was losing a little bit of a part of that generalism that you really get to enjoy as a medical student like you know being a clerk for example is is stressful it's it's hard and it's hard to kind of be on a different rotation and expect to be kind of on the ball with that content and material as you go but one of the nicest things about it is that you do get that variety and you're jumping from from different areas you're kind of getting to experience it all and you're also getting to see how different people do things and how they practice in different ways and that's something that as you exit your training um you know you I mean, there's lots of continuing medical education events, but in terms of actually like sitting in a clinic with another colleague, you kind of lose that. Um, and um, so uh, I, in terms of why medicine, uh, so why endocrinology, why internal medicine and why endocrinology, um, internal medicine is, is very broad. And it, I sort of, um, I feel like in internal medicine, you're kind of like Dr. House. It's sort of what my vision was of being a doctor, um, you know, when I first started. And um, and I was still feel like within that, you're able to retain that generalism. Um, endocrinology is a nice focus within that, but it's also multi-system. It's also very numerical, which is kind of the way I think about certain things. And, um, and I think it complements, you know, the, it, it it's a field where you can sort of maintain that generalism while um, while still having kind of a, a more unique focus as well. But I'll just say to take it back that I think that I would have been happy in probably any of those fields, despite the agonizing decision process that I went. And as you go through things, I think you kind of, your experiences sort of shape you as opposed to, um, you know, I mean, you shape your experiences as well. But I think that, you know, if, if that fork led in a different direction, I probably would have still been in the, um, you know, I probably would have still been happy. In terms of why medicine, um, you know, it's, it's, Probably um, it was always something that I thought I would enjoy. Um, uh, my mom wanted me to be a doctor, um, but you know, no. In all honesty, um, you know, again, I think that um, I, you know, medicine has so many wonderful aspects about it that you know you're all starting to learn and will continue to grow into in terms of, you know, relating to patients and interacting with patients and you know, the science background behind it and the constant developments and the evolution and the ability to complement that sort of clinical career with all sorts of other interests like teaching, which is, um, you know, what, what much of my role relates to. Um, I don't know if there's so many fields that you can do all of those different things and really shape your own path in the way that you want to. Um, I, again, you know, other fields are a little bit of a black box to me, but my guess would be that in a lot of other fields, the path is much more prescribed than, you know, the kind of sort of flexibility and latitude that you'll all have in your careers to shape your own path. That was really nicely said. Thank you. And I'm curious, do you still watch House now? So 
Yeah, so I, I don't I don't really watch House uh, so much anymore, but it, that was kind of uh, Grey's Anatomy and House were the things that were in vogue 2006 to 2010. So I feel like people still watch that. If you probably went to a generation of students before that, they would probably talk about ER being like the thing. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe now you guys watch The Good Doctor. I don't know if that's a, that's a popular thing, but, um, but uh, yeah, you know, just I think that... Um, uh, you know, we're certainly not surgeons like House in internal medicine, but, uh, you know, if I were to summarize it in one sentence, the ability to work up undifferentiated patients and really kind of use all your knowledge, skills and background to figure out what's going on is a really unique and rewarding part of the field. And that the same applies within endocrinology as well. Yeah, amazing. And I just wanted to advocate that Grey's Anatomy is definitely still in vogue. Um, I watch it. I'm sure a bunch of other people do as well. Um, kind of jumping to the other extreme, if you couldn't do medicine or medical education, what would your dream job be? Did you have a backup plan? Yeah. So I think in medical school or in undergrad, I would say my backup plan was probably teaching, I, I think. Um, so, you know, again, it's pretty cool that, you know, within the role of being a physician that you can meld that interest in teaching within your own career. And um, just to echo, you know, I think, um, you know, we're lucky that we have that sort of flexibility. If you would have gone to me, you know, 20 years ago and asked me, you know, maybe when I was a kid, what I wanted to be, it would be um, I probably, I, I was always into like newscasting. And I thought that being like an anchor on a, on a news broadcast would be kind of the neatest thing. And, you know, I, I remember that, uh, you know, when I was in grade eight, we had this shadowing day and I really wanted to shadow and be Peter Mansbridge. So I sent this letter to Peter Mansbridge saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm in grade eight. I would love to shadow you. I want to be a news broadcaster, you know, on and on and on. And, and you know, I remember my parents said to me, you know, um, you might want to just do an extra backup in case because you know maybe maybe you know that's not going to work out so there was um i don't know uh, i don't think people watch the news so much on tv anymore i don't want to speak for others but the national um in the second half there used to be uh, a different broadcaster named pamela wallen that used to come on for kind of the second half so i sent this i didn't, I didn't really watch pamela wallen's show i must admit but i sent the same letter to pamela wallen substituting in her name Name for Peter Bansbridge. And a couple of weeks later, I get this call from Pamela Wallen saying, you know, I was so touched by your letter. I would love to have you on the show. Um, and I shadowed her. So that was uh, definitely a cool experience in the CBC building. And um, I got to meet a lot of the broadcasters that day too. So that's that's my uh, my little side, uh, side story there. That's amazing. That's so funny. Um, this question is kind of related to that, but like, what is something else you want students to know about you, either in your personal life, your academic life? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, again, I don't know how, I, I think things have evolved since I was a student in terms of, and this podcast is wonderful because it kind of breaks down some of those barriers as well. But I would just say that, you know, all of your teachers, um, and everyone who's involved in your medical education, you know, we're all sort of juggling a lot of the same things that you are um, in different 
aspects of our life and at different recognizing everyone has their own unique circumstances, um, sort of, et cetera. But I think that when I was a student, I sort of looked at my teachers as kind of these larger than life figures. And, you know, in clerkship, I would look at my preceptors as, as sort of larger than life figures. And when you kind of go through the system, like you realize that they're all the same, like we're all kind of the same, um, you know, in terms of, you know, being at times uncertain about ourselves, imposter syndrome, um, you know, feeling like we don't know enough in different regards. So I would say that that would be my thought is that, um, is that, you know, um, you know, we're all sort of, everyone has their own unique circumstances and is juggling different things. And, you know, at the end of the day, even though some of your teachers and preceptors are, you know, more senior in terms of their medical training, um, you know, they're probably thinking through things and once felt exactly the same way that you did. And, um, and hopefully you don't lose that. So remember how you feel now um, and, you know, use that to kind of harness, um, your own vision in the future as you go through the system. That's awesome. And I'm also curious, like you mentioned, imposter syndrome and just, it's something I struggle with for sure. And many of my friends and peers I'm sure have at, at least once felt the same way too. Do you have any strategies or like mindfulness exercises you go through to kind of ground yourself or to boost your confidence? Yeah, I mean, I think you just have to kind of jump in and go with it. And anytime you're about to start a new role or go into a new rotation, if you're a medical student or, you know, um, uh, you know, some of these new roles as you start off, um, you know, there's a lot of hesitation, but hopefully, you know, through each of our own collective experiences, you know, we can kind of reflect on the fact that, you know, we were probably apprehensive about starting medical school. And then, you know, once we got through, you know, ITM, we were apprehensive about kind of the changes in CPC one. And then, you know, when you came to CPC three, you know, the same sort of thing, you know, might have happened. So, um, you know, I would say that reflecting on past successes um, and kind of the fact that you are where you are because you've overcome some of those kind of um, hesitations, um, you know, is, is what for me, what I find is the best thing that allows you to move forward. And, and just to say, I think those hesitations are healthy because, you know, if you're overconfident or you really feel like you can, you know, tame any situation that you're in, that's probably not healthy either. So um, I think that it's actually part of a healthy, um, you know, dynamic. Yeah, that's great advice. I think it, like Calandra said, it definitely applies to almost all med students, if not everyone at some point in our training, just because we have to adapt to so many new um, learning styles and different things. So that's really helpful. In terms of adapting, this kind of brings us to our next question of if you have any words of wisdom for the first years who are starting CPC1, as we know that it's a big transition from ITM. Yeah, so I, I mean, CPC1 is part of the kind of gradual transition that, you know, we're all making from kind of um, students of, of sort of science into kind of more of a clinical 
focus. So, you know, I kind of, um, when I think about CPC one and what I think is so great about it and continuing with CPC two and CPC three is that, you know, I sort of think if you know the content in CPC one inside out, and, you know, by extension, all the other kind of uh, specialties within medicine that are covered in CPC2, CPC3 and life cycle and, and putting it all together in CC, CNC. But like, say, for example, we're doing our infectious disease block right now and we're going to move on to immunology and then hematology. And if you know that content, say for the hematology weeks inside out, you really are set for, for clerkship and beyond. And you know, I think that the, the transition has to do more with kind of thinking about things in a clinical mindset, which is new to a lot of individuals. But I would empower individuals listening to say, you know, this is really, this is medicine. And, um, and it's, you know, things change a little bit when you get to residency. But I have to say, like, you know, um, in terms of say endocrinology, where I'm also uh, a week lead for week 29, um, you know, a lot of that content, if you know that inside out, you're on par with, you know, uh, to function in almost any clinical setting from a knowledge standpoint. And I think that's really, that's really cool. And as you go through the system, again, you know, I reflect on, you know, you're doing OSCEs in internal medicine, and then you're doing Royal College examinations. And the questions change a little bit, but the sort of general topic matter, you know, again, I think that you'd be on really solid grounds if you know the CPC one content really well. So I guess the two pieces of advice would be number one, um, you know, try to kind of get yourself into the clinical mindset, thinking about differential diagnoses and thinking through organized and structured ways to approach clinical problems. But then number two, to sort of embrace it and realize like, hey, this is this is medicine. This is what, you know, you're here to do and sign up for. And if you kind of get yourself excited in that way and know that that again, that content is really, you know, a really solid footing for everything else that you're going to encounter clinically down the line. You know, I think that should be hopefully motivation to, to kind of embrace the content and immerse yourself within it. That's definitely great advice. And I think it speaks a lot to the transition to CPC. I know myself and Clandra are both second year students. And for me personally, I found it was a big transition to kind of problem solving and applying things in a clinical way. So I definitely agree with everything. And hopefully our listeners will also um, get some wisdom from your words of advice. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And, um, you know, just to, to sort of emphasize that we're all here to support everyone. And, um, you know, um, we're really excited to, to start the course and, uh, and learn together. For sure. And that brings us to the end of all of our questions. So we'll stop grilling you now, but we just wanted to, <laughs> again, thank you so much for your time and coming to our podcast to share your advice with students who we both know will really appreciate it. So thank you again. That's awesome. Thanks, Danielle and Calandra. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you and, uh, you know, wishing everyone a good next couple of months and, uh, you know, looking forward to hopefully coming together in person down the line. And uh, thanks for your efforts in putting together this wonderful podcast. Thank you.
Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's listening.